Well, let's turn together this morning to Daniel chapter 9. We're going to read from verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction on that one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn now our attention to the word of, of the prophet that you have inspired, which is truly your word and by which we, we live. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and you would teach us and you would instruct us and that we would have ears to hear what your word is saying. Father, we pray that you would change us and stretch us and where our thinking is not in line with your thinking father we pl we pray that you would change our thoughts and you would help us to understand and we thank you that your truth truly sets us free we thank you that when we know the truth we are indeed set free lord for when we know the truth we know who you are and knowing you lord is is what sets us free Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for this time in your word together. We pray that it would be a blessing to both us and to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week I mentioned that Daniel chapter 9 is one of the coolest 
and most famous chapters in the Old Testament for Christians, right? And the reason why Daniel chapter 9 is one of the coolest and most famous chapters in the Old Testament for Christians is because of this prophecy that's contained at the end of it. And if you're not familiar with that prophecy, and if you don't know why it's so cool and so famous, I'm sure that you will see by the time we get through with it why it's so cool. It truly is. But I also mentioned last week that it is a sign of our shallowness as Christians that we don't connect the prophecy with the larger context of this chapter and this book. We don't connect the prophecy with the prayer. When we don't do that, it's a sign of our shallowness. And the prophecy sort of is just a really cool prophecy that tells us of the chronology of the Messiah. But there's really more to this prophecy than that. As you remember, the prayer, as I mentioned last week, provides for us the theological fiber of the book of Daniel, right? So there's all this stuff we've heard in the book of Daniel. We've heard about uh, Jerusalem being given into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. We've heard about these other kingdoms that come, uh, Persia and Greece and Rome. We've heard about, so we've heard about history. We've heard about prophecy and things that are going to happen. And you can read those, and it's kind of arbitrary if you don't connect it with the theological fiber of the book. What is the reason Jerusalem was handed into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar? Why did that happen? What's the reason that Persia and Greece and Rome is going to come? What is the reason of this little horn? What is the persecution of, this, of these saints all about? What is the kingdom of God being set up all about? Not just it's going to happen, but understanding why. And the theology behind that history and behind that prophecy. And really the prayer provides us with that fiber because Daniel's in tune with the covenantal background of what's going on with his people, right? All this stuff is happening to them. They're being exiled to the nations, scattered to the, to, to the nations. And Daniel isn't just sitting back wondering, what's going on? You know, I don't, I, I don't know how to process this history. I don't know how, where's God in all this? Daniel knows where God is in all this. Daniel knows what's happening with his nation because of the scriptures and because of the covenant that God established with that nation through Moses. And so that's what the prayer is all about, the covenantal background. And we are supposed to understand the prophecy in chapter 9 and the other prophecies in the book of Daniel also with this covenantal background, not just not disconnected from that, not uh, arbitrarily, but within that framework. That framework is indispensable to the prophecy that we find here at the end of Daniel chapter 9. It's indispensable to the book of Daniel. It's indispensable to understanding our Bible. I hope that that makes sense. I've, I've said that repeatedly, but it needs to be said over and over and over again so that we get it into our minds because it's often that that escapes us as Christians. And I hope this morning to accomplish this, that this morning we're going we're gonna to see how the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 is connected to the rest of the chapter and it's connected to the prayer. And next week we're going to look at the details of the prophecy. Next, next week we're going to see why this prophecy is so cool and we're going to explore the, the different details of it. But this week we're not going to do that. We're going to focus on its connection to the prayer and its theological framework, what this prophecy is about. Look at verse 20. 
Here we are reminded that Daniel's prayer in this chapter is all about Israel and Jerusalem. In verse 20, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. So if you remember last week when we looked at the prayer, his prayer is all about Israel and it's all about Jerusalem. He's confessing the sins of Israel. He's seeing himself in solidarity with his sinful people. Daniel is a righteous man, of course, but righteousness is only in Christ. There is no righteousness by our works. Daniel is a righteous man through faith in the Messiah, but as I said last week, we as righteous people through faith in Christ, we can still identify ourselves with the sinful people of this world because the only thing that makes a difference is Christ. Apart from Christ, we are not better than anyone else, right? So it's not, oh, look at those horrible people over there who've, who've sinned. Look how bad they are. We see ourselves with them. We say, you know what? We are bad. We as human beings, we as mankind are sinful. We have no righteousness. We all deserve destruction. And the only thing that makes us different is Christ. And so Daniel's confessing his sin and the sins of Israel, and he's acknowledging in the prayer the covenant between Israel and God. That's what this prayer is all about, isn't it? Lord, you are righteous and open shame belongs to us. You have fulfilled your word that you gave through Moses. He mentions Moses specifically. We have been sent to Babylon and sent away from our home because of our sins. The great calamity came upon our people just as it is written in the law of Moses. And then Daniel, after he confesses his sin and he acknowledges that the punishment that came upon his people was just and it was righteous and it was part of the covenant, Daniel then prays and requests that God would restore Israel, that God would make his face shine upon the city and the people that are called by his name. So his prayer is about Israel and Jerusalem and their relationship with God. But Daniel was not just praying for Israel's sake, right? In verse 15 to 19 of chapter 9, when he pr presents his request before the Lord, he's not just praying for Israel's sake, but he's praying for God's sake. And he's appealing for, to God to act for the honor of his own name in the light of the nations. Because God's name is invested in that people and that city, as he says in verse 19, O God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. So he sounds just like Moses when Moses was interceding with God when the people of Israel had sinned and were rebellious and God was going to destroy them. Moses was appealing to the same thing. No, God, don't do that because these people are called by your name. And if you wipe them out, then that's going to make you look bad. <laughs> and that's what's going on here in Daniel chapter 9. This group of people, they are the God of the Bible's chosen people. And if they fail, then it tells the world that God isn't real, that the God of the Bible isn't real, that the God of the Bible isn't good and faithful, and that the God of the Bible isn't powerful, that he can't keep his promises to those people. All of that's communicated by what happens with Israel and if they fail, then everyone says, ah, see, the God of the Bible either isn't real, or he isn't good, he's a liar, and he's a bad God, or he just 
isn't a powerful enough God to fulfill his promise to Israel. Now, someone might say, I don't understand. What happens to Israel doesn't, doesn't seem to bother me in my relationship with God, right? You're saying this, Eli, that what happens to Israel is a reflection on God's character, but it doesn't bother me. I, I don't really care what happens to Israel, and my relationship with God is fine. And I still think God is real, good, and powerful. But the only way that you can have that position, and, and many people have that position, is when in your mind you've conceived a way of putting Israel aside and out of the picture. And as we talked about several weeks ago, um, the way people do that is they, they think that God doesn't have any promises to Israel that he needs to fulfill, so that what happens to Israel doesn't really reflect upon God's character at all. So the reason, the way that someone can not be bothered by what happens to Israel is if in their mind they've, they've conceived that there's nothing more, God has nothing more to do with Israel. And we discussed that a few weeks ago, and, and what I see as exegetical and theological problems with that view. That there are major problems with the view that God has nothing more to do with Israel and no more promises toward them. But consider also that besides the exegetical and theological problems of thinking that God has nothing more to do with Israel, the world itself doesn't think that way. And the world itself still sees God's name bound up in that people. The world itself still understands that according to the Bible, Israel, that group of people, they are God's chosen people that God made promises to. So we as Christians can argue with them and say, no, he doesn't really have anything to do with them. But that's not easy for them to follow. And what they understand is, no, no, I understand the story. And what happens to them is a reflection on what happens to God. I wasn't going to go here, but I just want to mention this as an aside. Consider for a moment if the nation of Israel today, in the 21st century, was annihilated, if it was. If the nation of Israel was attacked and they lost their sovereignty and they were annihilated and scattered again to the nations, most people in the world would take that as a sign that the God of the Bible isn't real, that the story of the Bible isn't really true, that God is either not a good, maybe he is real, but he's not good, he's a liar, or that God isn't powerful to keep them. That, that's just a fact of how the world would think about that. That's how they thought in the past, and that's how they still think today. And just because we as Christians maybe have conceived a different paradigm doesn't mean they think a different paradigm. And if God is concerned with his name and if God is concerned what the nations think about him, then I think we as Christians should see that God is still concerned with what happens to Israel. But this is what's happening certainly in Daniel's day. I think it's safer to say, and more theologically and exegetically true, that God hasn't put anyone aside. God didn't start with them and gave promises to them and then, and then now has done something different. The Bible tells us that the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. God didn't make a mistake when he chose Israel. He knew from the very beginning they were sinful and unbelieving and stubborn. God knew this, so it didn't surprise him later on for him to reject them. God knew from the beginning who he was choosing and what the consequences of that would be. And God, the Bible reveals to us, has a plan to reveal his glory to the whole world through what he's doing with that particular group of people a plan to reveal his glory to the whole world through them. So Daniel's prayer 
is about this, and it's pregnant with a request for ultimate salvation for Israel. We need to, we need to kind of get into Daniel's head right now and realize when Daniel is, is requesting, he's confessing the sins of Israel, and he's requesting for God to act in the, in the eyes of the nations, and he's requesting for God to restore, this man of God is not requesting God to do something temporary. He's not requesting God to restore Israel temporarily to the land, restore Israel temporarily to their place. In Daniel's mind, a, a, a future for Israel that God restores them to the land and then in the future they're bad and they get kicked out again and then he prays, bring them back, Lord, and then they get kicked out again. And they, a, rep a repetitive uh, kicking out and going back in and kicking out and going back in isn't what Daniel is, is, is praying about and isn't what this man of God is seeing, uh, is seeing what needs to happen. He's not praying for, what is, for this temporary thing for Israel, but for a permanent restoration for Israel so that God might be glorified. Daniel's not praying because he's afraid God won't do it, Otherwise, he would, God would be a covenant breaker if he didn't do that. But Daniel is praying because he knows God will, and he knows that God acts through means. For example, God curses because of our sin. God sent the curses of the covenant upon that nation because of their breaking of the covenant. History has abundantly proven that God is faithful to his covenant curses. That's something established as a fact of history. But just as God has been faithful in his covenant curses, so God will be faithful in all that he has promised to that nation because he's certainly promised more than curses. But just as curses come through sin, Daniel understands that any blessing that's going to come upon Israel must come through righteousness, and that righteousness comes through faith and confession. And so Daniel is here praying as the means to bring about that blessing, He's confessing the sins of Israel. He's confessing his own sin, and he's praying that God would have mercy and fulfill his blessing through the means of, of him turning to God in, in confession and in faith. That's why Daniel is praying. He knows that God is going to do it, and what God has promised will, in fact, be done. In fact, these prophecies that we've been reading about are simply showing us how God is going to do it. All these prophecies about the future and about the future dealings of God with Israel and the coming of the kingdom of God is simply an unveiling of how it's all going to happen. In a sense, it's Israel's conversion story, a preview, a rare preview of what's going to happen and how these people are going to come to faith in Christ. And Israel's conversion story is the conversion story of the entire world. So really, these prophecies are showing us a preview of what God is going to do to bring about that blessing to Israel and to bring in his kingdom of God, the, his kingdom to the world. And certainly through this, these prophecies, we can learn lessons about how God deals with mankind and how God deals with people and bringing them to himself. How many of you believe that God brought you to himself? How many of you believe that God taught you that you didn't, God just didn't sit back passively and you found your way to God through, through the thicket. <laughs> How many of you believe that God came and sought you and rescued you, right? That he did that in your life. 
And when you tell your conversion story to a friend or when you tell your, your conversion story to a non-believer, you basically are tracing what God has done in your life, right? You're not just saying like, oh, you know, he was passive and I did this and I did that and I did this. But you reflect upon your past and you reflect upon the events that took place in your past and you see God's hand in bringing you to himself. That's your conversion story. And essentially, these prophecies are just that, except it's, it's a rare preview. It's in advance. Here's the conversion story of how God is going to bring, through events and happenings, the people in the world into a place of blessing. So it's very exciting to read this in advance. In verse 21, as Daniel is praying, we find that Gabriel appears to him again. Gabriel, the warrior of God that we saw in chapter 8, that angel that we also read about in the New Testament coming to the, the Virgin Mary. So Gabriel comes, and it tells us in verse 21 that, in the last part of verse 21, that he came about the time of the evening offering. And that's an interesting statement because at, at this time, there is no evening offering going on. The temple is destroyed. And so there's no evening offering going on. But uh, as Thomas Constable says about this, I quote, the Jews were not able to offer the regular morning and evening sacrifices after the Babylonians destroyed their temple. However, pious Jews, such as Daniel, still prayed at these customary times, because those were times of prayer to God uh, in Israel during those sacrifices. So you see how they're still using the temple as a reference for their prayers. And in verse 22, Gabriel tells Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. That is, I haven't just come to give you information. I've come to give you information with understanding of that information. This is what God wants for us. Speaking of theoretical knowledge and really grasping and understanding, God wants us to have information, true information, but he also wants us to grasp and understand that information. So many people go to church and they can quote to you the creeds and the catechisms verbatim and they can say, yes, I believe in them, but they don't really have the understanding and the grasp of the information that they've received. This is what we need to see when we read the prophecies. You can read the prophecies and you can just see a bunch of information. This is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. But do you have understanding and wisdom to understand what is going on with those events? What is the meaning of it? This is what God wants Daniel and all of us to have. He wants us all to have insight with understanding. We see in verse 23 that Gabriel was sent at the beginning of Daniel's prayer. So even though at the end of Daniel's prayer, he's saying, Oh God, hear. Oh God, open your ear. God had already heard and opened his ear, and God had sent the angel Gabriel to him already with the, with the answer. And he tells Daniel that he is highly esteemed, in the Hebrew, we talked about how that word is chamad, and it means that he is greatly desired by God. He is a great delight to God. And that is because Daniel understands who God is. God, Daniel understands the ways of God. Daniel reflects upon the meaning of all these things, and he sees what God is doing and how it reflects upon who God is. Just like Jeremiah says, don't, don't rejoice that you're a great ath athletics. Don't rejoice if you're a great uh, intellect. Don't rejoice if you have lots of wealth. What you should rejoice in is that you know me. That's what you should be 
rejoicing in it. Because if you don't know me, it doesn't matter if you have all those other things that the world thinks is so cool and so great. If you don't know me, you don't have anything. And God ends that, that statement there by saying, rejoice that you know me, because in that I delight. That's what I delight in. I delight in, my peop- in people knowing who I am. God doesn't delight in the Olympiads, but God delights in every single person on this earth who knows him and understands his ways with men. And here's what, that, that I execute justice and righteousness and loving kindness in the earth. That's what it says in Jeremiah, that you know me, understand that I'm a God who executes, who acts. I'm not a deistic God. I'm not a removed God. I'm a God who in the earth acts with justice, righteousness, and love. And when you understand that, not just justice, not just love, and you understand my ways, you're one in whom I greatly delight. And so Daniel was such a man, and so is every one of you who understands God's ways as well. You are Hamad to God if you understand him. And so at the end of verse 23, he says, Now listen carefully. Give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. That's good advice for us as well. We too should listen carefully to what the angel's about to say. Now at quick glance, brothers and sisters, at quick glance of this prophecy, starting in verse 24, we should be able to see right away the importance of, of this prophecy. Have you seen that? A quick, a quick glance? Without going into all the details, you should be able to see the great importance of this prophecy. Just look at verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city. Okay, just let's not look at all the details here, but look at what, what's it going to do. To finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. At quick glance, we should realize, whoa, this is a big one. <laughs> this is not some little prophecy about, you know, some man in the future who's, who's going to die because he's trying to rebuild Jericho. Like, this is a big, huge prophecy. And verse 25 to verse 27, uh, or excuse me, verse 24, is what verse 25 to 27 is all about. All these details that we're going to look at, they're about these major things here in this text, verse 24. And so really, if we were just to concern ourselves with the details and get all excited about the details and miss how significant this prophecy is theologically, we'd really be missing this prophecy and not understanding what's going on. Notice in verse 24, this prophecy is not simply a prophecy about the chronology of the Messiah. The the essence of this prophecy is not when the Messiah is going to come. Now, that is in this prophecy, but this prophecy has major theology in it And you'll see in verse 24 that is actually about the future of Israel. Look at the beginning of verse 24 again. Seventy weeks have been decreed for what? For your people and your holy city. So that's what this prophecy is about. It's about all of this heavy theology that we've just looked at for Daniel's people and for Daniel's city. It's about the future of Israel. 
Robert Culver reminds us, lest we forget, this prophecy is given in answer to the very Hebrew prayer of a very Hebrew prophet in a very Hebrew style. It develops out of the problem of the 70 years of captivity of the Hebrew people in Babylon. That's the context of this prophecy. Daniel is praying, as I've said, about Israel and their relationship with God in light of Israel's 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And this answer is given in response to that. And it's about his people. If you look at the details of verse 25 to 27, you'll notice that most of the prophetly, prophecy explicitly concerns the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the city, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the ceasing of the sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. So even if we just don't just take verse 24, where it says this prophecy is about your, your people and your city, look at the details of 25 through 27, and you'll see very clearly it is about Jerusalem and the people of Israel. This is a messianic prophecy, to be sure, and the Messiah is prominent in it, but it's the Messiah in the context of Israel and the covenant God has with Israel, and we don't divorce the Messiah from that theological framework. We don't understand the Messiah apart from that background and that context. Verse 24, on verse 24, the commentator Andre Lecoque says this, the eschatological blessings of verse 24 are described first before the steps which lead to them are spoken of. Now let's look at verse 24, and I'd like to, to look at these things that are promised for Daniel's people in the holy city. The first thing that's promised, it says here that 70 weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to finish the transgression. Now, if you remember when we've looked at some of the other prophecies in Daniel already, we've already seen this word transgression come up, right? And if you remember in chapter 8, if you want to go back there briefly, uh, in chapter 8, verse 12, it says, this is referring to the, the uh, trampling down of the temple, the trampling down of the sacrifice and the, and the persecution of, this, of, the, of the people of God. It says here in verse 12 that all of that bad stuff that's going to happen that frankly causes Daniel to lose a lot, of, uh, uh, a lot of peace over it. He's distressed when he hears this. But all of it is on account of transgression, it says here in verse 12. 8, 12. On account of transgression, the host will be given over. And if you look on in verse uh, 13 here, it says, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror? So here's the covenantal background, right? There is no bad stuff that's going to happen to Israel if they keep the, co the commandments and they don't violate the covenant. It's because of violation, it's because of transgression that all this bad stuff takes place. So it's because of transgression that there's problems. And this prophecy of chapter 9 says, 70 weeks are determined to finish transgression. That means after these 70 weeks, there won't be any more transgression. Transgression will be gone and no more. And when transgression is gone and no more, guess what else is gone and no more? Indignation. Curse. 
punishment, which is only on account of sin. So what an, an amazing prophecy this is to, ma to fi make an end of transgression, to finish it. There will not be any more sin and any more curse. That's what it says in the next thing, to make an end of sin. Once again, the, the, it's a, it's a, these aren't two totally different things. It's just two ways of talking about the same thing. Imagine to make an end of sin. How many of you would like to live in a world like that where there's no more sin? It just doesn't happen anymore. Sin is gone. And once again, you'll, you'll notice that in the next couple uh, uh, phrases, he's not moving on to other things. These are all different ways of talking about the same thing. In the next part, he says, to not only to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, where sin and transgression are gone, but to make atonement for iniquity. And this, brothers and sisters, is how the other two things occur. Because sin doesn't just go away, right? So we're thinking about making an end of sin and making transgression gone. Now we can either think of that two ways. One, at some point in the future, human beings and Israel are just going to stop sinning, okay? But at some point, they're just going to get it right. And then there won't be any curse anymore because they've obeyed and they've stopped sinning in their behavior. But we know, as Christians especially, <laughs> that no one has cleansed their hands and purified their heart, amen? And that sin doesn't just stop because you just wake up one morning and say, you know, I'm sick of this whole sinning thing, I'm done with it, right? I'm not going to sin anymore. <laughs> I'm going to fulfill Daniel 9 and I'm going to stop sinning. I'm, I'm going to be the solution to this problem. We just know that doesn't work, right? How many, of you, how many of you, maybe before you were Christian, you tried that and it didn't work? And the Bible tells us it will not work, that no flesh will be justified before God by obedience to the law. If you don't learn that lesson, you are not, if you haven't learned that lesson, you're not yet a Christian. And if you don't learn that lesson, you're not going to be saved. You have to learn that you cannot deal with your sin problem. You cannot stop sin in your life. You are a sinner. You are helpless, the Bible says. You need sin to stop some other way. You need, you need help. And the way that the Bible tells us that sin comes to an end and that transgression is finished is not by our obedience to the law and our stopping it in our behavior, but it is through atonement for iniquity. Think about this for a moment. The Day of Atonement in Israel is a perfect picture of this. Israel is a completely sinful nation. That day, the day before the Day of Atonement, and the day of the Day of Atonement, when they're all coming there to the temple to make it happen, they're all sinners. None of them have stopped sinning. And the next day after the Day of Atonement, they're still going on to sin. This, sinning. This is a sinful people who comes to the temple, and yet after the high priest performs his symbolic ritual, which is a symbol of Jesus Christ, it has no efficacy of its own, but he confesses the sins of Israel over these goats, he kills one goat and he sends the other goat away, and then he turns to the people and says, your sins are all gone, right? Wait, they didn't stop sinning. They were sinful one minute before that. They're sinful one minute after that. But on the Day of Atonement, the pronouncement is your sins are gone because this sacrifice has taken it away. John the Baptist said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is through the atonement for iniquity that transgression is finished and sin is gone. So it's saying the same thing from a different aspect. 
We don't just stop sinning, and God doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. God doesn't just say, okay, I'll just forget about your sin. It is through the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice for our sins that he paid on the cross 2,000 years ago. That is what makes an end to sin, and that only. And so 70 weeks are decreed to make an end of sin, to finish transgression, to make atonement for iniquity. And there's another way that you can look at this. Look at the next phrase. And this should excite every Christian. Because this, is, this, is, this sounds just like the New Testament, doesn't it? Not only to finish transgression and make atonement for iniquity, but to bring in everlasting righteousness. Righteousness that doesn't go anywhere. Righteousness that doesn't go away. Righteousness that stays for good. Seventy weeks have been decreed to bring in this everlasting righteousness. And once again, this is just another way of looking at the exact same thing. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and his sacrifice on the cross, our sins are gone, our transgressions are gone, our sin is atoned for and we are forgiven. But not only that, righteousness is brought in. And that is that we actually become righteous before God. We actually are counted as righteous before God. That God doesn't just look at us and, and forgive us and give us a second chance. God doesn't just say, okay, we'll, we'll clean the, the slate of the past and we'll, we'll see how you do in the future. But God justifies you, as the New Testament tells us and as Isaiah 53 tells us, and you are before God actually righteous in his sight, not because of your behavior, not because of your obedience to the law, but because of what Jesus Christ did and through faith. If you are not eternally righteous before God, you are not a Christian. Every Christian can say, I am righteous, and my righteousness isn't going to go away when I sin, because it's not based upon me sinning. It's based upon faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Are you righteous this morning? Are, do, are a sin finished in your life this morning? Is atonement of your sin all accomplished in your life this morning? It is, and it's not based upon your works, but it's based upon Christ. So it's, it's not a coincidence that this prophecy is messianic, right? Because, it's, because the theological content of this prophecy is forgiveness and the bringing in of righteousness. This is an exciting prophecy for us Christians, isn't it? Now the last two things are also saying the same thing in a similar way, but... It, 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 the phrases are a little different. To bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy. Now, the, the point of sealing up vision and prophecy here is the, is the idea of authenticating prophecy and vision. So, after 70 weeks, what God has foretold will be authenticated and shown to be true. It's essentially saying the fulfillment of prophecy, of what God has said would happen, is going to happen in 70 weeks. And what God has said will be authenticated and vindicated. That will also take place. And of course, what God has said is there's going to be salvation. That's going to happen. And the lastly, to anoint the most holy. Now, some Bible translations will say the most holy place, to anoint the most holy place. And that's a perfectly understandable translation because the phrase the most holy is a common phrase in the, in the Bible for the temple. And so to anoint the most holy place uh, can mean to 
to consecrate or anoint the temple. But the phrase could also be referring to something other than the temple. It could be referring to a holy person, to anoint the most holy person. Uh, so many scholars and translations think it's talking about the temple. It could be talking about a person. And brothers and sisters, I personally believe that the anointing of the most holy is referring to not the temple, not a place, but to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason why I believe this is because I, I think there's a play on words here. The word anoint in the Hebrew is mashach, and the word for Messiah is mashiach. And we know Messiah means the anointed one, right? And it seems like there's a play on words in the text to, to anoint the most holy, and then in the following verses we find the Messiah. And the Messiah is the anointed one. So in, in essence, this prophecy is saying 70 weeks are appointed to Messiah eyes, the Messiah, in a sense. That Jesus will come, or the Messiah will come, and he will be anointed as the priest king of Israel. And so I believe that this is talking about the Messiah, and that ever, after 70 weeks, the anointed one will come. The Messiah will come as priest king. None of these things, none of these things mentioned in verse 24 come out of the blue. The prophets before Daniel had foretold all of them. The prophets before Daniel had foretold the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one, the ending of sin and indignation, and the bringing in of righteousness for Israel. So this isn't something out of the blue. This isn't something new that Daniel is hearing about. You remember Jeremiah chapter 23? Let's turn there briefly and then we'll come back to Daniel. Jeremiah 23 verse 5 and 6. And uh, Jeremiah was before Daniel. But this is just a sampling of how the prophets before Daniel promised Israel blessing in the future. So Israel was looking forward to this. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. And this is, should be a famous verse for most of us. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. And we can, of course, bring up so many passages in the Old Testament which talk about the coming of the Messiah and the blessings that are going to come to Israel because of the coming of the Messiah. So when we go back to Daniel, these aren't coming out of the blue. But what is essentially being said here is, Daniel, everything that you and all of Israel have been looking for and longing for and praying for, I am now telling you when it's going to happen. I'm not giving you what's going to happen. The new, I mean, new content about the blessing of Israel. You certainly already know that's coming. You're wanting it. You're longing for it. You're praying for it. But I'm telling you when it's going to happen. How exciting. Brothers and sisters, could this prophecy be any more important? The end of sin, the bringing in of atonement for iniquity and everlasting righteousness and authenticating of the vision, the anointing of the most holy, everything that Israel's been longing for, he's telling them when it's going to happen. Could this prophecy be any more important? I don't think so. The angel Gabriel 
tells Daniel when it's going to happen. All of these things will be fulfilled in a decreed period of time. That is 70 weeks, according to verse 24. All of these things will be fulfilled within a set decreed period of time, 70 weeks. In the Hebrew, the phrase is 77s. We translate it weeks because for us, a week is a period of seven, a period of seven days. But the Hebrew is seven sevens, and the Hebrews thought in terms of seven days like we do, a week of seven days, but they also thought in terms of a week of years, so a, a period of seven years. So for example, the Jews didn't just have a Sabbath every seventh day. The Jews actually had a Sabbath year after after every seven years, right? Do you remember this? So they're thinking not just in terms of six work days and then a, on the seventh is the Sabbath, but they're thinking six work years and then on the seventh year is a sabbatical year. So the Jews thought in terms of sevens. In fact, you can even go further than that. They also had what's called the year of Jubilee, which was like a very special Sabbath year. And if you remember, it's, after, it's on the 50th year, but if you think about it, that's after seven sevens. That's after one week of, year, of years. Uh, then there's the Jubilee. So they're, they're always constantly thinking, or maybe we should say God is, seems to be always thinking in terms of sevens. And so they were as well. Almost, well, basically every scholar, whether Jewish or Christian, understands the 70 weeks to be 70 weeks of years. And I'll give you three reasons why that is. Number one, taking the 70 weeks as 70 weeks of years instead of days um, fits the prophecy well, as we will see. So we should understand 70 weeks to be 77s of years because that, as we'll see, just simply fits the prophecy well. If you take it any other way, nothing, nothing fits here. Secondly, it should be seen as 70 weeks of years because the, uh, the figure of years is confirmed by other prophecies. And let me point this out, and we're going to look at this again as we, next week as we look at the, the details itself. But do you, do you recall in verse 24 that, uh, not verse 24, verse 27 of chapter 9, Daniel is focusing here on the final week or the one week. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So one of these 70 weeks is in view. But it says in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrificing grain offering. So the week here is divided in two. So what's seven divided, by, uh, divided in half? Three and a half, right? So seven divided in half is three and a half. So in verse 27, we have a three and a half period going on here. Now, is that three and a half days or is that three and a half years or something else? Now, if you, if you remember in other prophecies, you can look at Daniel 8, you can look at Daniel 7, you can look at Revelation, prophecies in Revelation. It also deals with a time that is described as a times, time, and a half time, right? And that times, time, and a half time, if you recall in Revelation, is specifically said to be 1,260 days or 42 months. That times time and a half time is said to be three and a half years because that's what 1,260 and 42 months is. So in other prophecies, you've got prophecies of three and a half years. And so it's 
not a coincidence that here we have three and a half years. We should connect the three and a half years of Daniel 9.27 with those other prophecies that also mention three and a half years, which shows us, of course, Daniel's 70 weeks is talking about years. But I'd like to point out a third reason why we should see the 70 weeks as 70 weeks of years, and this is very interesting. By the way, what 77s, what 70 weeks of years, what, how many years would that be? 490, so just get a calculator if you need it. 70 uh, times 7 is 490. So basically, Dan, uh, Gabriel is telling Daniel, 490 years are decreed for all wonderful things to happen. But I'd like to point out that there's another 490 years, not days, but years, that's in view here, that often gets missed. There's another, a different 490 years that is in view here. And turn with me to 2 Chronicles, the last chapter, verse 36. 2 Chronicles 36. <clears throat> and look at verse 21. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 21. And this is the chronicler describing Babylon coming and making waste of Jerusalem and destroying them and taking, them in, taking Israel into captivity. And he gives the explanation here in verse 21, and maybe you'll recall this. This was to fulfill, this destruction and this captivity was to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. So this is a detail that uh, we don't see in Daniel 9, but it's present implicitly. That Israel's captivity in Babylon for 70 years, it says here, according to 2 Chronicles 36, 21, had to do not only, but also with the land itself enjoying its Sabbaths that it didn't enjoy when Israel was in the land, okay? And so for 70 years, the land kept Sabbath. Nobody was working the land. Nobody was farming the land for 70 years. It was just laying, laying uh, at rest to fulfill its Sabbaths that it didn't get uh, when Israel was in the land. And if you go to uh, Leviticus 26, turn there with me, and uh, God actually... <coughs> prophesies that this would be the case in Leviticus 26 verse 34 and 35 Leviticus 26 34 now this is a prophecy this is saying if you don't keep the covenant this is what's going to happen and it happened so Leviticus 26 verse 34 then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths. This is when they've been scattered to the nations, if you look at the context. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbaths all the days of the desolation while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land will rest when, and enjoy its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it will observe the rest which it did not observe on your Sabbaths while you were living in it. So, 70 years was how long Israel was not in the land farming. Seventy years was how long they were in Babylon. So if we take the sabbatical year, every 
seven years, there's a Sabbath year of rest. Every seventh year, there's a Sabbath year of rest. Every seven more years, there's a Sabbath year of rest. How many weeks of years would that be to account for 70 years of Sabbath years of rest? 490, exactly. So the 70 years of captivity of Israel in Babylon was to give the land 70 years of rest, which they didn't have for 70 Sabbaths, which was a period of 490 years. And to make this really interesting, if you start with the Babylonian captivity, if you begin with when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, and you go back 490 years, 77s, guess where you land? The anointing of King Saul, the beginning of the monarchy of Israel. Isn't that interesting? So we have two 490-year periods that are in view in Daniel chapter 9. One is the 490 years past, which we can call the period of the kings. And during that period when Israel said, no, we want to govern ourselves, we don't, you know, God said they've rejected me and, okay, give them their leader. During that period, we have 490 years of the kings. Then we have 70 years of captivity. And after that 70 years, we have another 490 years that, that Daniel is being told about by Gabriel. And we can call that the period of no king. Because in that, in that period, there is no king in Israel for 490, for this 70-week period. After the Babylonian captivity, there is no son of David reigning on the throne. And that 490-year period in the future will end when the son of David comes to be the king. Isn't that interesting? So 490 years of kings in the past, 490 years of no king, and then at last, the king, the anointed Messiah, will come. So there's a kingly theme here also that is implicit that we often miss as Christians. There's a, there's a Davidic kingly theme to this 490-year prophecy. But then blessing will come to Israel and not without their Messiah. Now in closing this morning, what do we learn from all this? I'd like to point out three things. Number one, God is a faithful God whom we can trust to keep all of his promises. That's what we learn from, the, from Gabriel's visit to Daniel. Because Daniel is saying, God, you know, your people and your city lie in ruins. Please shine your face upon it. God, act for your name's sake. Act for your promise's sake. Act for your people's sake. And God doesn't just do nothing. God sends Gabriel and says, Daniel, I want you to know that God is going to act. I'm going to tell you when he's going to act. And so the fact that there's still a future here for, for Daniel's people and the fact that God has promised here that he's going to fulfill his promises proves to us all that God is a faithful God whom we can trust to keep his promises. This is perhaps the most important lesson we can learn from God's dealings with Israel. Because if God doesn't keep his promises with them, then we don't have a basis to trust in God. Number two, we learn that God is a God who is in control and who is precise in his dealings with men. This prophecy shows how precise God is, or just the whole scheme, right? 490 years, 70 years, 490 years, and it's all over. I mean, God is precise in his dealings with men, and he is the one who's in control, setting up kings and tearing kings down, allowing nations 
to rise and to conquer and putting them down again. God is in control, but yes, but he's also precise. As James tells us in the book of Acts, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. We learn that God has set times, God has determined times, and his desire will be accomplished in the earth in his time. That's an, that should be an encouragement for all of us. That God, he's definitely in control, but it's not willy-nilly either. He's precise, he's got a plan, he's laid it all out. And we are all a part of that plan, amazingly. Even the Apostle Paul said that at just the right time, when, it, when, it, when in due time, when, God, when it pleased God that he was saved, that's how the Apostle Paul understood his own conversion, right? Paul didn't see his conversion willy-nilly either. He said, God set me apart from my mother's womb, and at the right time he revealed his son in me when he, when, when he planned it. It's an amazing thing that God is that much in control. And thirdly, we learn, if we haven't already, that everlasting righteousness is necessary in order for God to bless. Everlasting righteousness is necessary in order for blessing to come upon Israel, upon the world, and upon individuals. It is because of Israel's unrighteousness that there's indignation. There's indignation upon the ungodly of all the earth because of unrighteousness, as you can see with the flood. There's an example of how God punished the earth because of their sins. We learn that God is a just God and sin is not a little thing to God and the wages of sin is death and God cannot simply set aside sin. God cannot simply wink at it and say sin is not a big deal. There must be atonement for iniquity. There must be everlasting righteousness in order for you to be blessed. You cannot be blessed apart from righteousness. No one can. Life depends upon it. And Gabriel doesn't tell us how that's all going to come about. I mean, he gives us, uh, he gives us um, allusion to it. He says 70 weeks are going to transpire. Everlasting righteousness has come in. He alludes to the death of Christ. But brothers and sisters, we know as Christians, now that you know, Christ has already come, and we've heard about Jesus Christ through the apostles, we know that the bringing in of everlasting righteousness and the atonement for iniquity is accomplished through our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. The Apostle Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And it is in Christ alone that we have life and are blessed. It is in Christ alone that we have everlasting righteousness. It is not through our works, it is not through our obedience to the law, it is not through what we do, but it is through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, and by simply putting your trust in him, that you obtain atonement and righteousness, and therefore the blessing. This is what the New Testament tells us. And why would God do that for us? Why would he do it for you? Why would he do it for this world? Why would he do it for Israel? And there's no other explanation except for his love for sinful man and his desire to glorify his own name. Just think about this for a moment. God has set a time when he will reverse the curse and bless the whole world as all the prophets have foretold. 
He set a time when that's going to happen. We, we, we uh, are given this time period. And like Daniel reading in Jeremiah and seeing, oh, 70 years are accomplished for Israel, we can look at Gabriel saying, well, 70 weeks are going to take place before this blessing can come. And instead of just sitting back, twiddling our thumbs, we too can pray and thank God and confess the sins of mankind and invite others to come in as well to that everlasting righteousness through Christ. One day all of Israel will turn to the Lord and receive that righteousness through faith. One day the, the whole world will learn God's ways when Jesus reigns as king in Jerusalem. This is what Daniel was longing for and praying about, and this prophecy was the reply. But before that day, brothers and sisters, God does not want people to just sit back and twiddle their thumbs and wait for that. Wait for that. We, he doesn't want to, oh, 70 years and then it's all going to come, 70 weeks and then it's all going to come down. He wants us now to come in. He wants us now to believe. He wants people to come to Christ now and be righteous through faith. And the New Testament tells us when they do, they come into the commonwealth of the righteous ones in Israel. See, there's Israel, that group, right? And it's an unrighteous group. But within Israel, there are the righteous ones like Daniel. And God is calling people to be like Daniel and to understand his ways. And he's inviting Gentiles into his righteousness now, not later. To believe now and have forgiveness before that set time comes. If you are in Christ as a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are one of those righteous ones like Daniel. And I'd just like to encourage you this morning that if you are a Christian, then your sins are gone, your iniquity has been atoned for, and you have righteousness. And you are like Daniel, God's delight for understanding his ways. There is no indignation for you, but there is only God's delight for his righteous saints who know his name. So may we rejoice today if we are already forgiven and if we are already righteous now before the day. May we rejoice. May we invite others to come in now. And may God give us insight with understanding into all of these things in his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the everlasting righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for not leaving us in our sins, even though that's certainly what we deserve. Thank you for being a God who keeps his promises and that we can trust in you. That you will be faithful to your word to us of salvation through the Lord Jesus. And Lord, put a longing in our hearts like Daniel's heart to see this world come to honor your name. Make us concerned about your glory in the earth as well, Lord. Not merely our own personal salvation. And Lord, help us to Truly rejoice and be glad for what you have done for us so that in our joy we might go and tell others about what they can have as well. Lord, I also pray that you would give us understanding into these things. Help us not to just breeze by them and gloss over them, but help us to understand what you're saying in your word 
in the scriptures of truth. That we can understand and be in tune with what you're doing so that we can get involved too. Father, thank you for your word in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.